I'm Pete Soderling, and welcome to the Zero Prime Podcast, where we explore the early stories of top startups via the experiences of their engineer founders. This week on the show, I chat with Alexi LeCouc, the co-founder and CTO of Datadog. You've definitely heard of Datadog already, but many people don't realize that they are also one of New York City's early enterprise startup success stories. Having personally started an enterprise software company in New York City in 2009, I know the challenges that Alexi and his co-founder, Ollie, went through in their early fundraising for Datadog when enterprise tech wasn't the norm in New York City and there was very little community support for B2B engineer founders. I couldn't be more proud of them both through all the challenges they've had to navigate along the way in bringing Datadog to the success it is today. Before we start our interview, I'd like to personally invite you to our next event for the global data community, Data Council Austin. From March 28th to 30th, 2023, I will personally play host to hundreds of attendees, 80 plus top speakers, dozens of startups that are advancing data science, engineering, and AI. Data Council attendees are amazing founders, data scientists, lead engineers, CTOs, heads of data, investors, and community organizers who are all working together to build the future of data. And as a listener to Zero Prime, you can get a special discount off regular tickets by using my promo code PETE20, that's P-E-T-E-20. I guarantee that you'll be inspired by the quality of the folks at the event, and I can't wait to see you there. And now, on to the show. So, Alexi, welcome to Zero Prime. It's really great to have you here. I'm really happy to be here. Thanks, Pete. I feel like every other week I'm recording with my friends who I've known for generally a long time, and you're no exception. I think back to the days of what you're doing before Datadog in New York City, which was Datadog was 2010 or so. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, 2010. I think we, I'd say we probably got started a few months before that, but 2010 was when we decided to uh, take the plunge and, and go. So I'm curious, when was the first time you remember as an engineer dreaming about starting a company? I think it was, I'd say probably in 2006. The reason for that is I I guess I'm old enough to have lived through the interesting years of 2000, 2001. That was a few years into my professional career, but it's emerging 2001, 2, 3, 4. I still remember the, the tech sector was basically scarred for a while. So probably 2005, 2006 is when things started to emerge a little bit. It felt like the green shoots of the potential tech recovery were popping up. So I think in 2006, I found myself in position with my current co-founder with whom I've worked many, many years. We've worked many, many years together. We're two engineers sort of looking at our, you know, at what we could do with our two hands as it were and thinking, well, we know how to write software. There are problems that can be solved with software. Let's find one and try something. Now, invariably, you know, we'd come up with, and I remember it was largely during the summertime, we'd come up in some ideas, some good, some not so great. And we started hacking something together to basically to discover that, well, what seemed to be a good idea or something, even something just interesting to work on was not so interesting after all. And so we basically give up uh, come September. He and I back then were working in the education sort of ed tech sector. So September was a big you know, sort of the big season. So naturally, if we didn't have enough momentum sustaining our, our motivation, then come September, it's like, okay, there's a bunch, the, you know, the day job just called and, and wants us back. And so we had these cycles 2006, 7, 8, until 9, I think 2009, where the ideas behind it started to coalesce a little bit, which ultimately led us to start a company. But I'd say it predates really Datadog. Though, if you'd had asked me, you know, when I was growing up, being an entrepreneur was the last thing I would ever do. It was not in my DNA, definitely not in my family, or, you know, generally speaking, I did not grow up 
that, you know, with that kind of upbringing. So I felt like I was not terribly well prepared for the journey, though I think where we, just like so many other entrepreneurs, what we benefited from was the abundance of information that sort of emerged then, you know, there was so many blogs about, I don't know, how to get funded, how to set up a corporation, like everything it's sort of you'd, you'd look for, well, how do I do this? You know, this is my first time as an entrepreneur, how do I do this? So now I think it's even more structured, but back then, I think we had an easier time than probably the prior, the prior wave of entrepreneurs who had to figure out a lot of things by themselves. And so what about the funding, the decision to pursue funding in, in this, if you had this iterative um, sort of on the side process, in addition to your day job, how did you decide when to take the first funding and what was the path through those early days? So I'd say in the early days, there was probably part of it. So 2009, when really we, the idea behind the dog started to germinate, the cloud was starting to maybe become something that could become something big. I'd say, obviously, from the standpoint of AWS, that was the case. But I think from the, the rest of the industry, I remember looking at the early days of EC2, for instance, and wondering, but how am I going to run any kind of workload? The instances that are underpowered, you can't really, I mean, it's okay for very you know, large scale out type of workloads, but for what was then the classical enterprise application, you needed fewer beefier machines to run what it is the business that that uh, whatever business you were in so it was it was not obvious but there was there was enough that we thought well maybe there maybe there's something there and the other thing i think is maybe just the the fact that to trying three four different ideas is that this uh, summer 09 rolls in and like well maybe this time you know maybe this time we do it like maybe this time we we stick to it and see where it leads us so in a weird way i think there's a bit of third time's a charm type of thing or wanting to persevere that I think, you know, led us to to decide to start. So now the funding piece was not at all obvious. And I say that as a as trying to start a sort of enterprise software company in New York back when really the mood was much more for mobile games, consumer products out in New York. And so we struggled for a long time. We looked here, we looked at West, and, and it took us a while, I think, to get to get into raising some funding. Now, the positive, I think, behind that was that we effectively had to, while looking for funding on the side, we had to build enough product that, you know, the first customers would show up because we're like, well, you know, fundraising, you're at the mercy of the calendar and the introductions you can get and so on. So that's partially in our control, partially out. Building the right product or building enough product that we can have an interesting conversation with a prospect that is squarely within our control. And I think it was, in a sense, a it was a bit of a blessing that we didn't you know, stumbled upon easy funding, as it were. I mean, it's never easy, but I think some some folks had easier have it easier than others, and it forced us to what I would say is a certain discipline, which I think carries over to this day. And did you raise an angel round first and a seed round then, or what was the? How did you think about those tranches? The seed round back then for us was I think twenty k, and so this was modeled. We went to YC, didn't make it past the the first the, the interview. So came back to New York. We effectively found a similar program uh, in New York City. You know, got our first what twenty twenty five k of investment for you know some fraction of the ownership, and then that sort of got us 
didn't cover much, of course, but you know, puts in a sense, it's a, it's it's real money nonetheless, and it it makes it real, right? It's not like, well, there's just a two, you know, my friend and I are just you know hacking on the side, and we can walk away from this thing, and there's no you know no expectation. Once somebody else puts money, it, you're you felt bound to doing something at least, you know, to try. You feel bound to trying. So I think it was very positive from that standpoint. It got us to build enough product, I think, to to be able to get to what would probably call the pre-seed round, but it was a sort of a, a real seed round, you know, in, in the low million, you know, in the low millions for sure, um, to to then be able to hire a handful of people. So I, I think the, the of course the amounts were different, you know, 10, 15 years ago, but the general dynamic I think was you know was one where even though I think starting a company is much cheaper now than it was 25 years ago, you still need you can't do everything yourself. You know, you need to get people uh, on board quickly, and and people need to get paid. So I think that's that works. That works. The logic hasn't fundamentally changed. The things we were not afforded back then was to spend any money outside of very basic sort of cheap office space and uh, and a handful of engineers and you know one designer so that's we we stuck to it for for as long as we could well i love that story because it's a lesson to founders today to be mindful of how the lack of capital the scarcity of capital actually focuses you on usually the survival things and the, the most important things about starting a company and with money being so cheap and easy you know largely over the last 10 years these rounds early stage rounds seed rounds have, have gotten to be much much larger hence the the mango seed round which is sort of like an old school series a so i love hearing i love hearing stories about how founders like raised 20 or 40k and got the company started and then as you said the additional benefit of really feeling committed and like you had to get off the fence and and take a strong stand so i love those aspects of the story i wanted to ask you on the product side because you you mentioned that there was this iterative process how did you back into what the early product of datadog was going to be and did you just purely iterate your way into that or did you and and ollie also have sort of firmly held beliefs about what you wanted to do like were you also idealistic in some way about certain pieces of it and iterated over the rest or i'm curious as to like how you would describe that so it's interesting because I think in our case, both applied. And I say both because I still have somewhere the printout of our first pitch deck, sort of pre, pre any kind of money. And when I when I sort of flip through it, most of what we thought would be cool ideas back then, I think we've either realized or are in the process of, or they still, we still think they're cool ideas. They may not be valuable per se, but they haven't, it hasn't lost too much luster as it were. That that said, I think the we became fiercely pragmatic, and and that's the I think constant contact with prospect customer customers, and you know being told no in trying to in tempering the vision. And I'll I'll give maybe a, an example. So you know Datadog is now you know considered a sort of monitoring and observability company, and now with a security twist. But back then we were really scared of being categorized as a monitoring company because we we're thinking, well, you know, monitoring you could if you Google you know searching. Google for monitoring back then you would even get you know pages and pages of hits for some large very large enterprise plays as well as a tiny operation that charges you know 10 bucks a month per per account and so we were really scared to be lost in the shuffle and so when we were first pitching the idea to let's say prospects we'd say oh we're building this platform it's a it'll let you do analytics you know really slice and dice the data you have it was not 
called absurdity back then, but that's what it is effectively. And you'd be able to go at it. Like, you know, if you have a background in statistics or then you'd be really happy or data analysis in general, you'd be really happy. And upon hearing that, most people thought it was a good thing. And, you know, it's like, yes, I want, you know, I have data. I want to be able to analyze. I want to know sort of second order effect of when this happens in my infrastructure, what is, you know, the root cause and so on, which is, you know, all true and valuable. But what they also said, sometimes they said, it out loud and sometimes we prod it a little bit is that is that was part of the problems they were trying to solve with the, the thing we we're building. The other thing which was much more sort of simple and basic, you know, maybe it was hey, I, can I see the amount of disk space I have throughout my entire data center in one place? Things that we had considered initially sort of in our naive vision as a, this is a solved problem, nobody cares, nobody's interested, but actually was something that was needed. So I think it helped us, you know, we knew we had to straddle the very basic but essential needs, as well as the more sophisticated use cases. And I think throughout the history of the company, we've, we've tried to keep that alive. We've tried, you know, whenever we, the fact that we have a sort of effectively a freemium tier for, for the infrastructure monitoring product is in response to that is like, well, not everybody has extremely sophisticated use cases, extremely sophisticated needs. Most people who run something online, even at a minimal scale, want to know how their infrastructure works. And by forcing ourselves to straddle that, you know, that fairly wide spectrum, it also ensured that we would not build you know, overfit to just one population. You know, we would not build an extremely sophisticated tool, for instance, that only appears to enterprises or only applies to really large scale cloud natives or and so on and so forth. So I think maintaining that generality has served us well. It served, you know, it served us well in terms of appeal to a relatively broad market. So it's something that even, I think even to this day, we try to, to keep alive. And, and this is it is hard, right? Because as you build, as your products evolve, there's always a customer, a group of customers, a segment of customers going to come to you and say, we need you to do this. And this sort of, it's general enough that it makes sense to build as part of the platform, but it's not so universal that everybody's going to use it. And the cost that it has, you know, you can implement and sure it'll cost you measuring cycles, time and money and so on. But it also importantly, it effectively usually uses some space on your, you know, real estate on your screen, which means that it's something else that you're going to put there or it's going to make the general look and feel complicated because there's a lot of stuff. And, and we have to ask ourselves, well, who really cares about it? If we add something on the screen, can we take something off? Are we disciplined and opinionated enough that we're not just slapping and layering feature of a feature of a feature such that it becomes completely very hard to use, which I think then goes against the land and expand motion that we and among you know many others have, have had, which is let the end user try out the product. Is this for me? Is this not for me? Can I tell by myself, you know, without talking to anyone else, can I make the determination? Uh, and that's, I think the prerequisite for that is the initial minute, five minutes, hour of the product experience have to be clean enough that you're not you're not put off. You're not like, oh my God, this is way too complicated. Um, well, I want to move on to sort of your experiences, uh, personal development and career development in being a founder and, and now obviously managing a very large team and, and engineering org. What types of advice would you give to other engineers out there who are thinking about starting a company in terms of things that they should learn and skills they should pick up before they even you know, make the jump 
when I started the company, I was 36, which gave me between 10 and 15 years of experience. By then, I had some management experience, sort of people management experience. And I had a better, in a sense, some of the opinions that I hold, that I have, they were sort of formed back then, you know, in that sort of, in that crucible. And I think that that is, that is something that I, that to me personally was useful. So it's not so much the particular skill set, but, but more having spent, you know, enough years sort of building things or living through situations, making decisions and dealing with their consequences that it at least, you know, personally gave me a bit of a stronger footing to then take on, take on starting a company. Now, I think ultimately it's a highly personal decision. I believe some people think that it is it, it is obvious to them that they must start a company and they do so at an early age and and I respect that. I think I was not definitely not ready ready for it. I don't know that you ever feel entirely ready for it, but um, I think you know your gut sort of maybe you know tells you whether you're you're close enough that okay you're you're gonna take the leap. So I'd say for me the important piece is the balance between skills acquired and experience had, but that there did not be overpowering a certain humility to learn, if you will, because whatever preparation you, you know, however you prepared you come, it's going to be different. It's going to be something that you, you'll encounter things that you are not ready for, and you're going to have to figure out how to, how to deal with them. So I think the, what I've found is that it, it is important to keep an open mind. And so thus, I think, is the, a bit of the paradox of the, of the situation where, as a founder, you do want to have some conviction because that conviction is needed to convince, as it were, others. But it can't be so blinding that, you know, sort of you refuse to hear what, what the rest of the world's telling you, or, you know, you, you sort of edit out all the unpleasant pieces. In effect, you're incapable of learning. So, so I think that's finding that balance one way or another, you know, either by yourself or, you know, being surrounded or mentored or having enough conversations um, with, you know, people around you, investors and so on. I think that that's very useful. And so that, I think, on a personal level, you know, is still the maybe a piece of advice that sometimes I give uh, new founders as well is keep learning effectively. It sounds like you're 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 describing it almost just in a general terms of personal maturity, right? There's just sort of a maturity that you develop going through all these experiences that you're able to draw on over time. And being a slightly older founder compared to a younger founder, maybe in that case, sets you up with more life experiences and work experiences, management experiences to draw on. Maybe in, in closing on the topic, I would say that this makes it a very personal thing, right? Because I have two kids, the youngest of whom is five, and pr- she probably, I'd argue, have at least as much, if not more EQ than me. And so it's not a question of age per se, but I think it's, you're right in, in the sense, you know, it is the, you know, being perceptive and not being too self-centered, self-centered enough such that you can build enough conviction, but not too self-centered that you ignore the useful signal that the world is sending you. Yeah, I got it. That's well said. Um, well, I wanted to ask you about your angel investing activity, because I know that you're active in helping other engineer founders start companies, and we share that interest between us. But what is it that you look for when you're sizing up a founding team and, and looking to make an early angel investment? How, how have your experiences sort of brought you filters and um, heuristics that you might use in that process? 
So I think, and this is going to be actually, the previous topic applies largely, which is when I'm meeting sort of angel investing, I think to me is, uh, it's largely about, it's completely about the team, right? It's, um, I do filter out things, you know, business markets that I have no understanding or no particular interest. Not because because either I think I have zero value or you know there's somebody more qualified than me to to be an investor on the team. Then once we've reduced that, I think it's so I ask myself how can how can I be useful and will I enjoy spending a bunch of time with with the team? That doesn't doesn't mean that I actually spend a bunch of time, but do the conversations I have with them leave me excited, energized, curious. I think that's a very important part of my decision criteria. Now that, you know, it's imperfect, it's it's as good as, as I could find. But I think conversely, as part of that conversation, I also gauge how they react. And so I've had conversation where, you know, we have a general discussion about the business or the products or the, or, or the maybe the end user, depending on how close they are to mine. And, and what's useful for me is to uh, if I if I posit something, you know, how does the team react? You know, are they pushing back hard, sort of completely accepting, or are they incorporating it as a oh that's interesting? Well, you know, let us see how this new bit fits in our world. Now, I'm, I'm not saying that what I say is the truth, and you know, you should say yes to everything that I say. But fundamentally, I think to me, it's I'm trying effectively to play the role there in that conversation of the. Maybe the informed customer. You know, I'm not a customer necessarily of their business, but I sometimes replay conversations that customers can have had, you know, with me in the past. And so it could be being sometimes curious or not understanding fully what the value is and, and, and seeing it as is and seeing how the team reacts. You know, is it, oh my God, you know, we're thrown off track quick. Let's, you know, let's, let's continue the playbook. Um, is it, uh, okay, that's interesting. Well, we, it's not, you know, maybe it's, it's a new category of customer we haven't encountered. So different ways you can, or are they asking a question back, you know, sort of using that and, and trying to refine their understanding. I find that as a good proxy, not perfect, but, but reasonable, effectively to gauge how well they'll incorporate new information coming from the marketplace, from their customers, their future customers, into their product thinking, into their go-to-market thinking. What I found, it's less, uh, unless it's very specific uh, technology that we're talking about. There, we can have a technical conversation, but I, I, found, I think founding engineers in particular, there's the, the real you know, risk or question or and so on is not about whether they're able to code or write or build product and so on. So that, that I think they'll have more experience than most doing that. It ends up being the least practiced sort of skills, which is convincing someone to part with the money to buy your product, supporting a customer when they're unhappy, when their expectation of your products is not, you know, what they had understood. And you know, I think it's never, you know, it's always okay. There's always something to learn, even in those sort of difficult conversation with customers. I remember in the early days of Datadog is I, I came to it very much thinking that conversation with an angry customer or an angry user was a slap in the face and something to be avoided and sort of Quickly, I changed my mind. I said, "No, this is actually extremely valuable. If anything, somebody somebody's angry at you, and you're assuming you did your best, but if somebody's angry at you, it means they care. Because something you don't care, I got to take the time to complain to to look for someone to complain to. So I think that's you know that kind of thing. I think is useful for new founders to hear." Even you know, consider and I try to tease these out through conversation with you know with the founding team. 
Yeah, I love those insights and that flexibility in the founder personality is just really critical. Well, thanks for sharing that. It's uh, it's really great to chat with you, Alexi. If folks are interested in approaching you for possible angel investment opportunities, what sectors besides, I'm sure, regular dev tools in general interest you, but what other things are you particularly interested in, in these days? So I've dabbled a little bit in uh, quantum computing, which there I know very little about, but I think I see also the angel investment as a way to learn, to educate myself. I'm generally also interested in, and this is much less refined, but you know, obviously the impact of the changing climate, like what problems we have, too many to enumerate, but which ones start to have a, a bit of a formulated answer or where there's you know enough that folks have some th- folks have thought of a solution to to try to address it so that that's interesting i'd say earlier for me so but but that's the type of of areas i tend to gravitate around energy stuff like that also interesting but again there in these sectors i'd say I come with a very sort of humble, I want to learn something about the topic and I'm curious about, you know, what others have found, where they think, where they they think there's a path. Because I think, you know, like I, like the rest of us, I think we have a part to play in this, in, in, you know, the solution to this very pressing problem. So that's, that's why it's of interest to me as well. That's great. Well, I'm happy to send folks interested in those areas your direction. Well, thank you. Thanks, Pete. Yeah, it's great to chat with you. Thanks for being with us and looking forward to seeing your success continue in the future. And we're always here to help if you need. This sounds good. It was an absolute pleasure to chat and catch up after this long time. Amazing. Thanks, Alexi. Talk to you soon. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Zero Prime Podcast. I hope you enjoyed my chat today with Alexi LeCuoc. You can find more on Alexi's company, Datadog, at datadoghq.com. If you like hearing from engineer founders on the cutting edge of enterprise startups and developer tools, please leave us a review on your favorite podcast app and subscribe to the show. We'll see you next time.